The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Three men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 39 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. I may not have read much Strangers in Paradise, but I've seen my fair share of Thunder in Paradise, brother. I'm Adam, and joining me tonight is a dude who takes his action figures very seriously and knows his 90s comics. Yes, from Toylines.com, it's Tom. How you doing? Hey, Adam. Thanks so much for having me on again. Yeah, we're glad to have you back here. I know we had a great conversation last time, and with Steven and Michael gone, I needed someone who is as informed as I am, and I feel like you fit the role, so. Awesome. Thank you, sir. <laughs> now, I have to ask, you know, last time we had you on the show, you were unbeknownst to be heavily medicated while recovering from surgery. <laughs> it was, yeah. So first, we have to ask, Tom... Are you high? Just high on being here, really. Oh, glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. But you know, uh, back in the day when you were uh, licking all that glue on those stamps, you might have been getting high yourself. So it's time to open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. Now, as a follow-up to our Bad Girls discussion in issue 38, Suzanne S. Clark, a reader, writes in about wanting more hunks in comics, so here's what she had to say. Dear Wizard, I am a 26-year-old married woman who would like to thank my husband for making me a comic book addict. Some of my favorite titles come from the more adult sector of the comic industry, like Spawn, Daredevil, Man Without Fear, Marvels, and Profit, to name a few. I think I'm well-adjusted to the male view of women in comics, movies, and magazines. I realize that more males buy comics than do females, and that the comic book industry must cater to those readers. I do not endorse censorship, and I do not expect the entire comic industry to alter itself overnight to suit the female readers, but let's compare what we're dealing with here. The guys get She, Vampirella, the Gen 13 women, and the nude women of Sin City. The gals get, mm, let's see, Evil Ernie, Grunge, Spawn, and Wolverine? Gag! I honestly can't think of one male comic book character that would be attractive in real life. Profit is about as close as it comes, and after all that genetic engineering, all he has to show for it are some big pecs. But every month, we're surrounded by females with erect nipples, breast implants, thong costumes, and legs everywhere. I want to let the people in the industry know that there are women readers out there, and we'd like to even out the field. Maybe I'm looking in the wrong places, but I'd like a little more for my comic money. <laughs> 
So just laying it on the line there. Now here's a wizard's response. Sounds cool, Suzanne. Now take it one step further. Tell us what you, as a female comic reader, would like to see. You've told us what you don't like. Now tell us what you would like. Is it hunky guys and skimpy costumes? Is it more emphasis on female characters? Is there a particular vein of storyline you like? Write back and let us know. The same request goes out to all our female readers. And I will send out the same request as well to all our female listeners. We definitely would love to have you on the show at some point. Get your perspective. We've had a few in the past, but not nearly enough. But I'm very curious for you, Tom. You know, we had this conversation on episode 38, but when the whole bad girls vibe was in the air in the 90s, were you collecting any of it? Was there a particular title that like, it was actually pretty good? Billy Tucci, she... Okay. An amazing book. And I mean, created by an amazing creator. I mean, it it had so much going on. It was mystery and intrigue. And at the same time, you know, it was a a strong female lead. And she was someone I wouldn't want to cross. Yeah, for sure. Here's the thing, though. I've seen online right now that Billy Tucci has a Kickstarter going for like a she omnibus, right? Yes. Yeah. So hopefully he gets that off the ground and maybe some people can uh, get a chance to finally read she because I know uh, William Bruce West, who was our guest last time around he said he actually would like see billy tucci at shows but he could never find like all the she books to read you know like billy tucci would be signing copies but you couldn't like find a complete run anywhere yeah thank goodness for this omnibus so what what females did you read adam (laughs) well none of the big ones for sure you know she vampirella lady death like none of that but gen 13 was mentioned in this letter so i was Mm -hmm. a big gen 13 reader so i feel like that's about as close as I got. They weren't oh, really nice. bad girls, you know, that was, you know, there was a cheesecake element, but I wasn't ever really getting into the bad girl comics. Gotcha. <laughs> so, the tides are changing. As we're saying, bad girls are taking over comics, but also, some of the more popular publishers are maybe losing a little bit of steam. At least according to this letter from Market Watch, Douglas Economo of Hicksville, New York writes, Dear Wizard, what the hell is happening with the values of Valiant comics? lately. For a long time, they were kicking ass on the top ten. Now, according to price values, they suck! In one year, Magnus Robot Fighter number three goes from $32 to $20. Ray number three goes from $74.50 in Wizard 25 to $50 in Wizard 37. And Turok Dinosaur Hunter still hasn't left cover price. I think Valiant is great. Have you people at Wizard read Chaos Effect? It was excellent. What's up? And Wizard responds, You and a lot of Valiant collectors have the same question. Basically, even though the early Vals are as rare as a good Melanie Griffith flick, wow. Wow. There are two reasons why their once-high values have dropped. First, the speculative buyers of the early 90s made these books hard to find and valuable by hoarding several copies. Also, most collectors generally can't afford these prices. Simple as that. And the retailers have been adjusting them. Yes, Valiant had a slump interest-wise for a while, which our top 10 reflected, but quality stories like Chaos Effect have brought more fans to the company's books. So, yeah, Valiant, not the king of the hill anymore. No. The fans are noticing, Wizards noticing. Did you get deep into Valiant at any point, Tom? Just with Exo Man of War. 
that was my book as far as Valiant goes. Well, lucky for you, Tom, because there is an Exo Man of War half issue offer in Wizard 39, and I happen to have it here in front of me. So just real quick, I mean, the story is nothing super fantastic. It's just like Toyo Harada is being accosted by Eric, aka the inhabitor of the Exo Man of War armor, and then he says, hey, there's these super-powered beings, these harbingers that are kind of evil, being broken out of a super prison. So Eric goes to try to capture them and take them back, but he loses because they have all these powers. It's actually a setup for a four-part storyline in the Exo Manowar comics called the Wolf Bridge Affair that had some really cool artwork by a guy named Jeff Johnson. So he does the art for this issue, and then he's doing that story arc there. So anyways, it's just kind of cool. The one thing I want to mention real quick, though, is in the back, they have an artist's sketchbook, which is something they seem to do a lot in these half issues. And in the back there, they're showing this, you know, how it goes from pencils to inks. And they're showing... Joe Quesada's imagery, you know, that was used for Exo Man of War Zero. And given that they had, you know, their big falling out with Joe Quesada at this point, I'm surprised they still included that in there. But maybe it's more on his end than their end. I don't know. Later on, I started getting into that group of kids. Oh, Harbinger? Harbinger, thank you. I was going to say Troublemakers? That was one of the, the Acclaim era books that was kind of weird. <laughs> no, no. Once Acclaim took over, it just died for me. Yeah, I mean, it definitely changed the the look and the attitude a lot and i would say that you know with what they're reflecting here in this letter i mean it's just the inevitable you know drop in prices during a speculator boom it's just it's interesting that by 1994 that was very okay here it is you know like you had like two or three years where it was a big thing and you could you know turn your books around and make some bucks but now maybe you're in trouble and i think you know we're at that point right now it's kind of returned right we see a lot of that like everything cards and action figures and even VHS tapes that I collect. Everything is like jumping up in value as if it's a a super collectible, but it can't last forever. Yeah, I mean, too bad we couldn't see into the future back then, but I mean, you know, now we have slabbed books that are worth hundreds and things of that nature. Yeah, it's it's one of those things I still, I don't know, I shake my fist at graded slabbed books, but... (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. And then I do remember that uh, column in Wizard. I forget which issue it was in, but... The headline was, this is why your comic book collection isn't worth what you think. (laughs) I remember that one. We will get there someday and yeah, maybe (laughs) turn some people's heads. But speaking of headline news there, Tom, it's time that we get into Wizard News. So the death of the X-Men is the headline where Scott Lobdell confirms Marvel Comics' cancellation of some or all of its X-Men related titles and that the publisher is planning on killing off the majority of the titles characters by year's end. Of course, this is all part of a publicity campaign for the Age of Apocalypse storyline, where Marvel rebooted all the X-Books for a few months in a different continuity with new character designs. Yeah, so I mean, this is part of like a three-stage effect. Like really, in the next issue, at issue 40 is where it all blows wide open. But yeah, this is one of those things where you're like, wow, what are they doing? You know, at the height of the X-Men's popularity, they're changing things 
things up. Why? Do you remember hearing this news, Tom? Oh, yeah. I do. Now, uh, speaking of new costumes, there is a new look for Batman headline, which contains the revelation that Batman will get a revamp from his classic look when Bruce Wayne returns permanently to the role of the Caped Crusader. Editor Denny O'Neill states, quote, We want to acknowledge and reflect the changes wrought in Bruce Wayne as a result of last year's Nightfall storyline. While Detective Comics editor Scott Peterson, he mentions with the costume that's going to debut in number 682, quote, The shorts he wears never really served a purpose. What we've done is very much in the same sense that we updated the Robin costume. He's still immediately recognizable as Batman, but with a slightly modern slant. So basically, if you take everything they said in here, it all boils down to the fact that the bat suit is now totally black, looks more armor-like, essentially as it is in the live-action films. I didn't remember this happening at all. It must have been very short-lived. Were you plugged into the Batman books at all at this time? Not at that time. It was weird. Yeah, it's kind of like nightfall and then bye. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Once uh, Azrael took off, I guess uh, people stopped paying attention. Yeah, it was kind of like Bruce Wayne's back, status quo. Well, there's nothing new to read about. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, I've looked at the issue, you know, that they were mentioning there where, where you, I mean, it was, I think they had multiple titles kind of debuting it at the same time, but Detective Comics 682, and it really is. It's prominent on the cover. You can see, you're like, wow, an all-black costume? And I really, I would have thought it would stick around for much much longer but i guess if it doesn't generate sales you just go back to what works so not only is batman getting a new wardrobe but in the wake of zero hour wonder woman has become the vigilante known only as diana while wearing star-spangled black bike shorts, a strappy sports bra top with a blue, red, and gold jacket. It's just a weird look for her, but I digress. <laughs> so it's one of those things, uh, as we were going into this, I posted on social media there. And yeah, the responses we're getting is people are like, it wasn't a good look. Like, nobody was 100% on board with it. I think it's pretty cool, but I'm not like diehard Wonder Woman. In fact, the Diana name, I was going through a back issue bin the other day, and I saw an issue of Hawk man from like early 95 where she was the guest star and it was guest starring just diana is all it said on there but it had her in that costume on the cover so i was like huh i didn't realize they were just really pushing that name as the new real name code name <laughs> yeah dc's always messing with their characters in this way i mean look back in the 70s when she was like a martial artist mm -hmm. and she had like a master and stuff I, I i don't know why they they always like the toys yeah well and the thing i always point to is you know with the wonder woman thing is you know eventually for what was it new 52 or was it just before that jim lee redesigned her do you remember that and it was basically oh, yeah. this same look almost but i just remember like okay wonder woman has pants now but she also has a jacket you know so i was like oh so it's, it's kind of similar yeah that's that's interesting but meanwhile green arrow has ditched the robin hood look and instead suits up in an orange and gold bodysuit kind of looks like a masked aquaman on land yeah again an interesting Interesting new design for him. Uh, and as Michael revealed in our Zero Hour episode, the costume was actually meant to be the costume that gets taken on by Connor Hawk. And so like, he eventually goes back to his standard look. Connor Hawk wears this outfit. I was like, oh, okay. If it works, it works. Now, after the popular Batman Predator crossover, Dark Horse and DC are now teaming up again for a Superman Aliens crossover battle written and penciled by Dan Jurgens, who 
actually reveals that the project was supposed to come out way back in 1992, but due to the major death, reign, and return of Superman storylines happening throughout that year in all of 93, it was shelved until this time. But also announced is a Predator vs. Tarzan comic from Dark Horse by Walt Simonson and Lee Weeks, which to me, that actually, that feels like the most perfect pairing, right? The original Predator is in a jungle, Tarzan's in the jungle. Oh, definitely. And it was interesting seeing a, a Tarzan book. I mean, when was the last time we saw a Tarzan in anything? And then Walt Simonson, he's the perfect crossover king, in my opinion. When he did Terminator versus RoboCop, that was incredible. I love that book. It's always interesting, because I know that Frank Miller wrote that, but I always thought, oh, he did the art. But no, it was it was a collaboration between those two. Yeah, once you get Walt Simonson and Frank Miller in the room, they can make magic. The crossover news doesn't stop there, as not only are Vampirilla from Harris Comics and one of my favorites, Shadowhawk from Image, teaming up for a miniseries called Creatures of the Night. But DC Comics and Malibu Comics were reportedly gauging fan interest in a crossover of their universes at San Diego Comic-Con, with a ballot containing such matchups as Huntress Nightman, Justice League Ultra Force, Batman Hardcase, and the most appropriate of all, Captain Marvel and Prime. This event never happens, however, as Marvel buys the Ultraverse from Malibu just a few months later in November of 1994. Yes, I have never heard about that before, that there was a possibility of DC and Malibu doing a crossover, getting the Ultraverse in there. Like, that would have been so interesting to see if they could have, like, just gotten it in under the wire before the buyout, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, That was. those are the types of crossovers that whenever you get writer's block, you just start picking and choosing which characters, <laughs> you know, put them both in a room and just have them start talking. Well, and really, I mean, this is like the era of the crossover as well. Like, this is where that became a huge thing again, and we're going to get into that a little bit farther uh, into the issue, but I, I just think it's so fascinating that it was just happening so much. Yeah, I remember picking up the Vampirilla Shadowhawk. I mean, it, it was mostly a, a book about blood, you know, because Shadowhawk was HIV positive at the mm-hmm. time. So it was, it was an interesting pairing. But I look back at Shadowhawk like I recently actually got a uh, Shadowhawk audio comic that is the audio dramatization that goes along with the Shadowhawk 2 series. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if you knew that even existed. I've heard rumors. The one that always sticks in my my mind is the Max. Yes. He had a full like actors and yeah, but it was almost like a pilot for the exactly. animated series. Yeah, right. and that's and that's when I saw the Shadowhawk listed in an issue of Wizard that that was, or was it even Wizard? It might have just been in the back of one of the Image comics I was reading where they mentioned okay. that that was coming out. And I was like, what is this? And I found it for cheap. I was like, this is cool. Nice. But yeah, Shadowhawk definitely handled the topic well. I felt I felt like he didn't overdo it, you know, with the HIV positive stuff. It was a part of the character, but it wasn't the main thrust always. Right, and that was the, one of the beauties of Shadowhawk. I mean, he was he was fighting a few things, but it wasn't the whole character. And mostly, I believe the main focus was people were upset that he was breaking other villains' backs. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> that, that seemed to be throughout the story. It's like, this guy's breaking spines! Yeah, it's a shame Jim Valentino decided to retire. Yeah, it's too bad. But I mean, you know, he was the kind of the elder statesman of that group. He'd been around oh, yeah. for much longer. So, uh, now it's time to get into our table 
of contents. So our cover for this November 1994 issue is a Spawn vs. Angela cover by Greg Capullo, who is the subject of the feature article Spawning Ground, revealing that he will be the regular artist on Spawn going forward in collaboration with Todd McFarlane. Now Capullo says Todd tried to get him to jump ship to Image while he was at Marvel doing Quasar and eventually X-Force, but he didn't accept it until he was, quote, discouraged at Marvel when they wouldn't promote him by name because they were scared that building up a name artist again would cause them to leave Marvel for Image, as so many others had done. But it looks like it just had the same effect either way. <laughs> you don't promote them, they go to Image. You promote them, they go to Image. Everybody's going where the money is and where the acclaim is. Yeah, and years later, he's done some incredible work at Millar World. You Have to Be Here is a book I highly recommend anyone. Reborn by Mark Millar and Greg Capullo. Hmm. It's a story of this old lady that dies, and she goes to her version of heaven to look for her deceased husband. It is an incredible, incredible story. Magnificent art. I mean, I hope Todd's not listening, but it's some of the best Greg Capullo stuff ever. <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, it sounds like maybe a little bit out of the norm for Mar- Mark Millar, so I'd be up for that, because most of his stuff turns me off. Really? Yeah. I'm not wow. a big Millar fan. I mean, I, I enjoyed Civil War. I like when he is tempered. I don't like when he has free reign to do whatever he wants, because I think he always goes overboard. That, that's my Millar take. Yeah, you should pick up Reborn, though. It is, it's heartwarming, it's beautiful, it's interesting. If if you like medieval stuff, it some of that in there too i'm telling you do yourself a favor pick up reborn yeah i hadn't even heard about it so i'll check that out now capullo mentions that he began working on the final issue of the violator miniseries after bart sears was booted and is now working on an angela miniseries with neil gaiman after completing the missing issues 19 and 20 of spawn that mcfarland skipped over in his publishing schedule and we've discussed that in previous episodes now capullo admits to enjoying the freedom to do more intense violence and sexual imagery at Image, relating that Marvel's edict to the artist was quote, very little blood, which played out when he drew a guy getting shot in the head as part of a Daredevil story, and Marvel erased the blood stains from the wall behind the character. They would also change his tiny bikinis on women in issues of Quasar to quote, old lady bathing suits. (laughs) So he felt like he was being censored over there. But you know what? It's the same thing that happened to Todd on Spider-Man and and that issue of X-Force. Yeah, with stabbing Juggernaut. Yeah, Exactly, right through the eye, and they told him to redo it. And Todd was like, all right, that's the last straw I'm out. These artists, they wanted to express themselves through bloody violence. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of McFarlane and speaking of getting notes from above, it's interesting because Capullo says that since McFarlane is one of the greats in the industry, he will be more open to Todd's suggestions for changes and improvements in his style. Capullo also admits that if the Spawn offer had not come his way, he would like to be drawing Mark Silvestri's Ripclaw character. thought that was interesting that that character in particular caught his eye. Yeah, especially once he was in the Image publishing house, he had his own book, The Creech. Oh, I didn't know about that. What was that about? The Creech? Yeah. It's kind of like Cygor. You know, he's a creature that was created in a laboratory and decides to escape. Okay. If you remember that issue of The Death of Superman Part 1, where Doomsday is all covered up and he just has the goggles. Mm-hmm. Okay, picture something like that without the goggles and ten times is big oh wow (laughs) yeah yeah it was a great story you know 
Capullo gave it his all. I don't think it was a big seller, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, the Creech. Okay, that's what to look for in the back issue bins, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, the next article here, When Titans Tussle, is not Wizard's first Imaginary Comics character showdown article. They actually did it way back with an Avengers versus X-Men situation. That's basically what was heating up the Iron Man versus the X-Men debate. But this is the first of really this main era of Wizard, where they're really firing on all cylinders. And it's definitely not going to be the last. I mean, there's an actual feature that <laughs> ends up being part of almost every issue for a many years. So um, now dream matchups from the Wizard staff include... Hulk versus Pit, Darkseid versus Thanos, Lobo uh, Lobo versus Wolverine, Thor versus Superman, Green Lantern versus Silver Surfer, Doctor Doom versus Lex Luthor, Sergeant Rock versus Sergeant Fury, Swab Thing versus Man Thing, Green Arrow versus Hawkeye, and finally Iron Man versus Exo Manowar. But yeah, it's so interesting to note that many of these matchups eventually did take place in later crossovers. Especially, like, I always think of Iron Man and Exo Manowar and Heavy Metal, which is an acclaimed video game, you know, just always, that one always caught my eye. But what did you think about these, Tom, as you were seeing their ideas for the matchups and the outcomes? Well, like they said, a lot of them ended up in the Marvel DC crossovers. Mm-hmm. I was a big fan of Hulk versus Pit by Dale Keown and Peter David, but I like weird crossovers. Like, these all obviously make sense, but I would love to see, like, a Fantastic Four versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah. You know, something something weird like that. That's true. You're right. They did kind of play it safe there with their choices. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who, who would you like to see? Ah, you know, when, when I think about matchups, I mean, because what I realized here, too, is like there were no female characters on the list. There was no superheroine matchups there, you know? And for example, like I would have taken somebody like Jubilee and then I know uh, she kind of got mashed up for the, the Dark Claw, but I was like Jubilee versus like the Carrie Kelly Robin or whatever that is, you know, like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like something like even like crossing universes in that way. Or again, like you're saying, going to more of the independent publishers and saying, okay, so what, what are some of your interesting characters? Like John Burns, next men, you know, versus the X-Men or, or versus generation X or something like that. You know, like, like I, I think that would have been interesting for them to throw one team into the mix as well. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like the, when the X-Men, Men met Teen Titans. Yeah, which is a good story. And hey, we want to hear from you guys out there. So if you guys have a uh, When Titans Tussle matchup that you want, let us know. We want to see hear about it on social media. But next up here, this is really interesting. Man of Clay is an interview with Randy Bowen about his rise to becoming the premier sculptor and purveyor of comic book and fantasy statues. Is that a name in your mind often, Tom? Oh yeah, especially back in the 90s. I mean, everybody knew his incredible Incredible statues. I remember he did one of Mark Silvestri's Witchblade. Just incredible. And actually, in some stores in the country, they actually blew it up to like a life-size statue. Really? Yes. I believe it's Comic Coliseum in Florida. They have one of those statues there. We've had Brian Cunningham you know, on the Wizard Files. Everybody has often mentioned that when they would walk into the Wizard offices, his area was just covered in Bowen statues. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, I remember my friend Jody took me on a tour through uh, Wizard's office. This was when the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie came out. Really? Wow. 
Yeah, and it was just like Daredevil all over the place with Ben Affleck and Elektra, and yeah, it was a fun time. <laughs> That's cool, yeah. Now, Bowen reveals that he originally wanted to be a comic book artist, but saw that there was a lot of competition for very few jobs, so he just quit drawing altogether. And he started sculpting for a bootleg model company, and his sculpts sold so well that he eventually got work from Dark Horse Comics, and they asked him to make a statue of concrete, you know, Paul Chadwick's concrete. Concrete. Great book. Oh, love it, love it. And then later on, the Xenomorph from Aliens, which he said he just worked in so much detail on it, you know, he's messing up his eyes, just trying to get everything right. But that led to him eventually doing a very popular sculpture of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which he was saying was selling for hundreds of dollars on the secondary market at this point. And from that point on, he was just in demand from all the big publishers to do like Batman or Gambit sculptures. And then the indie superstars, you know, you got Jim Lee and Jeff Smith, all these others are like, yeah, do my character, do my character. So Randy Bowen was also doing work for Mike Allred on his Madman character. And there actually is a sidebar in here, I don't know if you noticed, Tom, about Randy Bowen sculpting the Madman Randy Bowen statue. I think he did a bust later on, but this is like a full figure. And it's just kind of cool to see that in the making. Somebody who is such a fan, wish I had it. I'm sure it is hundreds of dollars now, maybe a thousand. Who knows the way prices are going? Yeah, it's amazing. Demand got so big that he had to hire sculptors who were working for Ray Winston. In between doing films like Jurassic Park, they were doing Randy Bowen sculptures. <laughs> yeah, and he said a lot of it was just like passion, right? It was like they were willing to do it because they just thought it was a cool thing to do. And what's also awesome is most people probably don't even realize, if you've never heard the name Randy Bowen, his Superman statue appears permanently in Jerry's apartment on Seinfeld on the bookcase. So like that, that is a Randy Bowen Superman. Oh yeah, that's the one where he's fighting that robot thing with the tentacles. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay, now moving on here though, getting back over to the Valiant side of things, Prince Valiant is an interview with Valiant Comics Senior Vice President and Editor-in-Chief Bob Layton, wearing some important hats over there. Now I was surprised to learn that Layton had actually begun his career in the 70s with Charlton Comics and then moving on to DC Comics before working on Iron Man in the 80s. And he says that, you know, his biggest contribution to the character and really like the medium in general was giving Iron Man a metallic look, you know, with glints and stuff coming off the armor that he says is now being used on every title that is not even Iron Man. Like everybody has armor that is shiny. Now, Leighton puts fears to rest that Acclaim just wants to quote strip mine Valiant for game concepts. So he's saying this is definitely a collaborative merging of two companies not a takeover um and then regarding how the valiant books are produced Layton says he lets his artists draw like themselves because quote do you know how many guys we've got over here who came from marvel because marvel told them to draw like rob liefeld and they didn't want to do it <laughs> So there it is. He had the inside track there. Yeah, the new talent said, yeah, I want to be Liefeld. I want to be me. Yeah, I mean, that was a big thing back then. I mean, everybody wanted to be the image guys, you know, that everybody was copying off. I mean, so many books just had like these weird like lines and cross hatching that didn't really work for their particular style. But you could tell they were just copying Liefeld and McFarlane. Yeah, like I've brought up uh, recently on our Zero Hour show, we were talking about extreme justice 
And that was like very, very Liefeld. Like they were just like, yep, we're going to steal his style. But also the Wonder Woman era that we were just talking about with her costume change and Artemis being Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. I think that was like Mike Diodato Jr. I think was the artist on that. And like he did great art, but it's very much a blending of Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld. Oh, wow. Yeah, everybody's just trying to grab it while it was hot. But apparently also Layden mentions he was very involved in X Factor when it first launched. But he said he's been erased from history. There's a new coffee table book that came out at this time that was celebrating the X-Factor books, and they don't mention him at all. Interesting. Yeah, so for any big X-Factor fans there, don't forget Bob Layton. You know what, though? And I'm not, you know, making an excuse for the X-Factor people, but his run on Iron Man was so definitive, so integral to, to Tony Stark. I mean, anyone that knows anything about Iron Man will always associate Bob Layton and to a lesser extent, David Michelini with Iron Man. Yeah, and he says he definitely he definitely gave Dave Michelini a lot of credit, you know, for the work they were doing together at that time. So, I mean, definitely definitive. And another reason in the article he mentions that one of the reasons why all the Valiant books look alike is because of the coloring, because they right. really didn't do that separation that uh, most of the image books created at the time. So that was the number one reason why um, a lot of people at Valiant said that that's why all our stuff looks alike. That was the house style, yeah, because it kind of would wash out a lot of the detail. Exactly. And that's why I always felt if it wasn't like Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti creating something like they did with Ninjak, like that that book just jumped out at you. It looks so different than anything else. And then oh, all yeah. the other books, yeah, look the same. But then very shortly after this, you know, during the Acclaim era, they do switch their coloring. Like, you know, if you were still collecting Exo Manowar at that point, I remember the color change and you're like, whoa. Oh, wow. It really did look very different. Now, next up here is probably uh, a group of comics you haven't heard too much about, dear listener. But Pulp Fiction is an interview with the second wave of artists and writers who are producing creator-owned comics through Malibu's Bravura impression. But I had heard of none of these titles as I'm going through this article. Like, the most interesting to me was Edge by Stephen Grant and Gil Kane. It said it was about, about the son of a scientist who they had created superpowered metahumans, but that, now those metahumans are running amok instead of helping the world. And so this scientist's son, he sets out to exact his own brand of justice against these metahumans. So it's kind of a prototype to the boys, in a way. Oh, cool. You know, somebody who is trying to take down the superhero hierarchy. Visually, though, the book that I wanted to read, and I was going to buy some some issues to possibly review, but they were kind of expensive because apparently everybody else still likes it. The Nocturnals by Dan Brereton, uh, who, if you don't know that name right off, he did the Thrill Killer books, if you remember those with the alternate universe, Batgirl and Robin. No, I miss those. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, you should check him out. He had some fun, like, Halloween-style imagery. Like, as I looked at it, it felt like very much, what if Tim Burton was doing a superhero team he created? It felt like what Tim Burton would make a good movie out of this. But yeah, so as far as I could tell, though, when I was, like, searching for back issues, Nocturnals is the only one that has gone up in value, thanks to Brereton's painted art style, I think. Even though, if anybody knows his work, all of his faces look identical. He has one male face, and he has one female face and he just changes hairstyles and he really everybody looks the same so <laughs> wow to keep track but other books in the bravura line were the man called Ax 
Axe by Marv Wolfman, which is basically just an extreme buff guy with a gun, like literally extreme studio style buff guy. <laughs> Metaphysique, which we have talked about in the past, is by Norm Brayfogle. It's really kind of twisty, turny in your brain there. And then Strike Back by Kevin McGuire is about a guy with a magical scarf and his team of adventurers. He looks like Doctor Who. What if Doctor Who's scarf was alive? Oh, wow. It's really weird. <laughs> so, but it was just hard for me to grasp, like, what is this story going to be about? Because they're like, oh, it's kind of like Star Wars. It's an epic. It's told and all these different things. And it's Kevin McGuire art, which is cool. But I was just like, nah, I don't know. <laughs> Didn't appeal. Returning titles included Power and Glory by Howard Chaikin, Star Slammers by Walt Simonson. There he is again. Dread Star by Jim Starlin, which had been bounced around to so many different publishers oh, over yeah. the years. And also Breed, which was the original name of the Shaman Tears spinoff book, which became known as Bar Sinister because they were already using Breed over at Malibu. And then it's also worth mentioning that the fold-out poster in this issue is not the Spawn Angela cover. Instead, it is a kind of a jam poster with the Bravura line of characters, which is pretty lame. <laughs> it's just like an <laughs> advertisement. You're just like, nah, this looks stupid. Oh, wow. Much better, I would say, is the two-page ad on the back of that poster, which shows like the end of the X books that we talked about in the Wizard oh, okay. News. It's, it's just really dramatic with like Professor X's wheelchair tipped over and broken yeah. and stuff and everything's just white. But finally, I wanted to mention uh, Palmer's picks this month highlights Strangers in Paradise by Terry Moore. Excellent book. So you've read it. Oh, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your experience with Strangers in Paradise. The Adventures of Francine and Kachu. So Kachu is someone that's looking for adventure. She gets tangled up in this mafioso type situation, and her best friend Francine is, is tagging along. Now, it's been a while, so my mind might be a little shaky, but it's always been between those two, their friendship, outlasting everything, and one sacrificing for the other. And it's their relationship between Francine and Kachu is so, like, so strong, it also kind of eclipse like whether or not they actually love each other so that's that's pretty much it and you know at the hardest story is the friendship and then you know how could you tries to uh, escape the mob yeah yeah she definitely seems to have this mysterious past i just recently read like the first few issues on comiXology because it's a series i always wanted to get into i for me terry moore created echo and i love echo nice. and it, it has a little tiny crossover with the strangers in paradise universe as i understand it but it's it to me it felt like a daunting series because it's gone on for so long like strangers of paradise just felt like it was always on the shelves like every time i went into a comic book store i was just like there it is there's that strangers of paradise again yeah it was also uh part of jim lee's homage studios yeah it eventually got picked up yeah so it's kind of like bone right it's kind of like doing exactly. it you're on your own and then you get picked up by image and get a little bit more exposure so right yeah Ter terry moore is great in terms of just his expressions they're just fantastic. I love oh, yeah. the way he's able to convey emotion. All right. So, Tom, now it's time to get into your area of expertise with Azrael's action figure fury. Fire. 
San Diego Comic-Con was filled with the action figure promotion in 1994, and the toying around feature gives us the details. We start with Toy Biz, who will be releasing 51 new figures in 94 and 95 between the X-Men, X-Force, Iron Man, Fantastic Four. Most exciting for diehard X-Men fans are the Jean Grey as Phoenix, Wolverine in a Fang costume, and the announcement that Rogue's figure will now be packed four or six to a case instead of just one. 51 figures, Tom. That is crazy. Toy Biz is out of control. I believe that was around the time where uh, Rob Liefeld actually said, I'm a action figure designer now oh yeah he was very excited it's so weird but i never paid attention to the fact that x-force was a separate line from the x-men because it was always on the same card backs but x-force had its own card design had its own characters that were in that line i was like oh and that and i never bought them like i never bought the x-force characters because i didn't read the book and i didn't like it so i really just stuck with the classic x-men line i remember uh, my first deadpool figure was part of this line it was the one where he had a spring-activated knife yeah. in his hand. Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> Announced are several exclusives like a cable repaint that will only be available at Venture Department stores, while Walmart will offer exclusive crossover two-packs with Beast versus web-shooting Spider-Man, Civilian Wolverine versus Peter Parker, among others. KB Toys will offer a metallic edition twin packs which repackage less popular figures like maverick trevor fitzroy as a two-pack with a bonus metal mutant figure also toys r us will be the exclusive retailer offering a mojo figure while fao schwartz will offer a battle pack of trevor fitzroy cable deadpool and forge with an exclusive paint job Now, I feel like if somebody wanted to have just a very focused collection that was only Toy Biz repackagings, that would take up like a warehouse. Like they did so much repackaging back in the day. Like, oh, these ones didn't sell? Well, let's just put them together then. (laughs) Exactly. That's what Hasbro is doing right now with their Black Series from Star Wars. Oh, Like, they're just taking figures from the Black Series that already came out, you know, sold out, but not every collector purchased one. So now what they're doing is the Carbonite Series from the Black Series. They're painting them in this metallic shine to them and just redoing the box. An age-old trick that works. (laughs) It's been going on in the toy industry for years. I mean, look at what McFarlane's doing now with his Gold Series. Basically, a regular figure that he made. Now it's painted gold and has a different box with the gold McFarlane logo on it. Well, and he did that back in the old days, too. There were all gold Angelas and all gold oh, squads. Yeah. Like, yeah, like that, that was, he did that. Let me ask you this, since we're talking about Angela. Are you aware of the Party Angela variant? Yes. <laughs> I believe I've mentioned it, that there was a Angela with the no panties. Is that what it was? Correct. Yeah, somebody <laughs> forgot to uh, add a paint application. Yeah, so that, that was a definitely a sought-after variant. Is that one still raking in the money on the secondary market? You know what? I'm not sure. I know a lot of the early McFarlane stuff isn't really popular right now. Oh. Yeah, a lot of people are want the newer McFarlane figures. Interesting. I mean, yeah, his DC uh, multiverse line, incredible. Yeah. Like, it, it practically 
literally sells out everywhere. So if you guys want the old stuff, now's the time to buy then. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, it's definitely. interesting too. Yeah. Cause I remember my buddy Brett and I, we used to like make like stupid action figure videos together. And one of the big ones we had was Angela was always like the hot girl that he was drooling over in the videos <laughs> and she would like beat him up. We'd do like some forced perspective and stuff. So it was pretty hilarious. Nice. You know, for the time. I, I gotta say, of the ones announced here, like, the one that stood out to me the most is the Civilian Wolverine versus Peter Parker. Yeah, right? Because I, I had both those figures separately, and I loved them. I still love my Peter Parker. I have him just in front of me on the shelf, and I would love to find that two-pack. That might be what I seek out. Very nice. Yeah, I hope you find it. So regarding the Fantastic Four toys based on the new cartoon series, it's mentioned that Toy Biz already released Marvel's first family in their Cosmic Defenders line, but these are new sculpts. The writer is most excited about a detachable fan- Fantastic Car and a 14-inch Galactus figure. Hilariously, the Submariner figure is described as Namor with a ponytail, as if that's an accessory. <laughs> This is a sign of how much detail they're putting into these things. Namor has a ponytail. And I was just oh, like, yeah. what? Yeah, everybody's catching up to the stuff Todd's doing over at McFarland Toys now, so... Yeah, at this point, they definitely had to compete somehow. And I got to say, the first Thing figure that came as part of this line, I have it. And my youngest son, he loves his Thing figures. So I have, because I have like a Marvel Legends one, and then I have that one. And he just, yeah, he loves playing with things. So (laughs) it endures. Thing's a great figure. Yeah, he's one of the great's the thing yeah i i will say there is a comic book store in tustin california which was comics tunes and toys what i always called it rob liefeld said he used to work there and he calls it something different but anyway but the owner of that store behind the cash register he had everything figure statue whatever that had ever come out it's like you know in the late 90s so he didn't have that many but you know there were like maybe 10 of them or something like that but they were really fun just i just love watching his collection grow because the everything figure was apparently his favorite guy so wow that's interesting now did you watch the fantastic four show i thought it was a great cartoon show back in the day yeah, no, I, I definitely, I feel like I watched more Iron Man than I did Fantastic Four, but, you know, they're obviously, they were on back-to-back as part of that Marvel Action Hour, so I watched them both, but, the yeah, Iron Man always stuck out to me a little bit more, but going back now on Disney+, Plus, it's a great series. I really like it. It really liked is, it. yeah. I mean, like you said, the Iron Man was also a great series. I mean, they eschewed some things like the Armor Wars, but it also holds up to this day. And speaking of Iron Man, the Iron Man toys are mentioned to be sold at $1 more than any other Toy Biz figure because they include removable metallic armored pieces that are interchangeable among the figures. The Spider-Man series is adding several new figures as well, including Black Costume Spider-Man, Six-Armed Spider-Man, Green Goblin, Scorpion, and many more. Yeah, this is my series. So the Spider-Man series is the one that I loved from Toy Biz the most. Like, I had had a good amount of X-Men as well, but pretty much every time they added a new figure, like, I was so excited when they did their special collector series, and they did, like, Spider-Man 2099, or they did the Ben Riley Spider-Man, like, all of those, like, every time, but especially the black costume Spider-Man. I have, you know, a carded black costume Spider-Man from the 
series on my wall because that was just a favorite. I still have my original, but I broke his little web crawling chest feature. Oh, okay. Same with the Iron Man toys. And I actually have a Modok from that Iron Man series in front of me. Oh, wow. And he has this, it's supposed to be like a psychic blast missile that launches from the middle of his forehead. It's pretty funny. (laughs) But I loved that interchangeable armor. I never even thought, though to take my Iron Man figure and put the War Machine armor on him. Like, it never occurred to me, but I did get, I remember for my, I think it was my 13th birthday, one of my friends got me, like, the big 10-inch War Machine. So I had a little one, and then I had the big one. I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're a big Spider-Man fan, and obviously you're a little older, you have some expendable income, check out all the stuff coming out of Mezco Toys. I like to refer to them as the updated Mego figures because it's all soft goods, you know, all their uniforms and stuff. Incredible detail and amazing articulation. Right now, they've announced they're coming out with a Spider-Man 2099 figure. Yes, Michael actually sent me a link to that just the other day, and I was like, oh, wow. I mean, because I, I generally am not buying, like, the newer figures. Like, they're beautiful, I can appreciate them, but I, I just love vintage. But that's what I may have to invest in, because I have so many of the other 2099 figures, so. Very nice, yeah. I mean, Mesco's doing amazing stuff with their with their licenses right now. And on the image side, Jim Lee is releasing his Wildcats figures through Playmates, and Todd McFarlane's Spawn line is expanding to include Rob Liefeld characters like Bad Rock and Chapel, while the Malbolgia figure, which is 21 inches tall, is supposedly going to sell for the same price as a regular-sized figure. I want to know if that happened, because that seems impossible, that you're making this gigantic figure and you're selling it for, like, seven ninety nine or whatever they were back then. Well, yeah, things were different, way different back then than they are now. Like, as far as, like, oil and tooling and plastics. I mean, maybe Todd just wanted to sell a lot of Malbolgia as, like, advertising. But, yeah, I mean, back then, you know, there was a lot of toy companies just popping up. And so get this. So one of the reasons why Bedrock joined the Spawn line so early on is because Bedrock is Todd McFarlane's favorite Youngblood character. Oh, that's cool. And Chapel obviously was featured in spawn comics yeah big part of the origin there when you find i was actually just reading through like the first you know 12 or 13 issues of spawn and yeah when i got to that issue where you find out chapel's the one that killed him you're like what yeah i was hoping to see a fully articulated diehard figure but that never came to fruition is he your favorite young blood character he is wow definitely i'm curious sell me on diehard what do you like about him well, uh, a lot of people have claimed that he is nothing but a Deadpool ripoff, and I could see their way, but he's part robotic, he's, you know, quiet. Uh, I'm a big, shy person in real life, believe it or not, so I have an affinity towards quiet characters. And, like, issues later, Die Hard just, you know, he stopped being quiet, and he actually took on a leadership position on, on Youngblood, so. So, yeah, so Die Hard has a, you know, a mixed bag of personality, but, yeah, it you know, it's appealing to me. That's cool, yeah, that he has an actual journey. Yes, yes, he's one of the few. 
Yeah, so let's uh, let's get into this because yeah, they do show the prototypes for the bad rock figure for medieval spawns horse, I guess, and mm-hmm. <laughs> you get to see Angela and a couple others commando spawn. But also in this issue, in the homemade heroes section, they have a really interesting array of characters. I do like the second prize, the Max. Yeah, that was an ambitious creator, Captain Britain. Yeah, he was one of the best in this issue out of a Batman figure from the animated series. I remember I, who made a Space Ghost figure, and I I was trying to do the same thing. I, I, I sawed off his ears. I painted him white with the yellow cape, and it, the hardest part was trying to actually get his symbol just underneath his chin. Oh, really? Interesting. So that, that was just difficult to get the detail on it, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not an artist by any of the means. Now, the, the bottom three are the most impressive to me. I mean, especially we have a radioactive man that is made out of an ultimate warrior Hasbro body and just a beautiful sculpt on the head and I I love Radioactive Man so I hope that guy held on to it and that he's going to put it up on eBay someday as a custom also the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern made out of Q from the Star Trek The Next Generation line which is like that's pretty perfect it works out really well yeah it's amazing what people can come up with I mean they can look at other action figures and just yeah I could see that as a you know Radioactive Man or, or Captain Britain I wish I had that type of imagination. Yeah, I mean, you, you really do have to see the potential there. The, speaking of potential, what's the potential at the box office? It's time to get into Heroes in Motion. So, the Spider-Man film, which we haven't heard about in quite a while here, but it was to be written and directed by James Cameron, they are stating once again it is even less likely to be made due to lawsuits between multiple studios, all who had different distribution rights for the film. Like, some had it for TV, some had it international, some had it for theaters, and so they're all suing each other, and the movie hasn't even gone into production. But it's mentioned also that Cameron wanted to make a solo Wolverine movie after after Spider-Man, neither of which happened. So that's too bad. I mean, James Cameron's Spider-Man, I still think would be really interesting to see someday. Maybe what he's done with Avatar and the MCU is waning or Sony gets desperate, they will bring him in. That's true. And you can find the script on the internet. Right, yeah. You can see his, his illustrated script. It's pretty cool. I wonder if his Wolverine script can be found somewhere. That is an excellent question. I wonder how far he got into it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know he was also supposedly doing like an X-Men where he was going to introduce Wolverine and then do a Wolverine movie after or something like that. There were a lot of rumors going around at the time. I remember back in the 90s, I used to shop at a store called One Flight Up in Newark, New Jersey, and they would have their back issues on top of the table. And underneath the table, they would have actual movie scripts. Oh, And one of the cool things I remember, I actually have both copies of Kevin Smith's Superman script. Really? Yes. That is. Where did they get him? Did you ever find out? How did they come across them? He knew a guy in California that was supplying him. <laughs> had the hookups. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Well, I'd be curious to know if in that pile they had the script for a fourth live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, which was reported to be a development by New Line Cinema. That they said they're finally going to produce it themselves because previously it was through Golden Harvest and they were just distributing the movies, but 
that this fourth Turtles movie obviously never happens. We eventually get the all CGI TMNT movie, which isn't too bad. It's pretty good. But I've, I've actually been watching the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 movie this week to listen along with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Minute podcast. Oh, nice. It doesn't get better with age. They could have only gone up with a fourth film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, the first movie was the greatest. Yeah. I mean, that's the definitive Ninja Turtle movie. And the figures from NECA, incredible detail. I mean, I, I have two sets of turtle figures that I'm ever going to own. It's the movie figures from NECA and then the Mirage comic inspired figures from Mondo Toys. Awesome. Yeah, those are great. Now, you can't find Mondo's figures anymore unless you go to a convention with a lot of money. Yeah. And unfortunately, the NECA stuff is also very hard to find, but it is doable. Yeah, and you know, the only NECA figures I have and that I ever need to have are the coming out of their shells tour figures. So that's what I got on my shelf, and I had to call in some favors from some friends to help me find those. So... That's all I need, and NECA, they're, they're producing so much Turtle stuff, I applaud them, but oh, yeah. I'm good. Now, Batman Forever is a film that happens, and in this issue, a few more details are revealed, such as the fact that the Robin costume will be the new updated Tim Drake design, but the character is going to be Dick Grayson, much like the animated series. It's very confusing for those of us that were reading the comics. And also, they seem to think it's cool that the Batwing plane will hang upside down in the Batcave. <laughs> I don't even remember the Batwing being in Batman Forever. I feel like I yeah, need to go exactly. back and watch. And then the Robin costume, especially the Tim Drake one, has a crazy story behind it. I don't know if you know about it. Oh, let's let's go on a little tangent. So DC Comics put out this widespread advertisement that we need somebody to create the new Robin costume, and we'll pay you something like $2,000 for it if we use it. So Neil Adams, famous Neil Adams from doing Batman for so many years, got a hold of it and he said okay I'll I'll take you up on this however I want 10 grand for the design and I think something like points too which was unheard of at the time so Neil Adams turns in his Robin costume which won surprise surprise and not only did he get more money than any other artist just for submission but he also gets like a back-end deal on those original comics that featured the Tim Drake design wow yeah that's crazy I didn't yeah I didn't know that detail I knew they had a lot of different ideas for it but I didn't know that he was the one that that, that won the day yeah cool he is a businessman uh speaking of business oh the legal drama between Rob Life and Roustabout, who produced the test reel of the Youngblood cartoon, continues as Liefeld is accused of violating agreements by putting out a press release concerning the lawsuit and also showing the Youngblood footage at Comic-Con this year, but cutting out the Roustabout credit at the end. So the bottom line is, you know, this cartoon never gets released. But, I mean... In a way, I mean, let's face it, the only two good image cartoons that came out were the Max and Spawn. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'll give props to Jim Lee for trying, but Wildcats just didn't, you know, it didn't didn't feel like the comic. Well, speaking of Wildcats, this issue, Garib Shavis reveals that he was invited by Jim Lee to provide a voice for some characters in the Wildcats cartoon. So he actually went up into a studio and got to read some lines. So if you want to hear the voice of the Big Cheese, Check out episodes 12 and 13 of Wildcats. It's on the Tubi app. 
Go watch it there if you're curious. Very nice. And then getting back to the Marvel Action Hour, we were talking about the figures, but the actual cartoon, they report that Brian Austin Green of Beverly Hills 90210 fame is voicing Johnny Storm, you know, the Human Torch. I didn't remember that at all. That that did not ring a bell for me. I was like, wow, that's cool. And also in the Iron Man series, that Tony Stark was being voiced by Robert Hayes, who is the star of the Airplane movies. Yes. I, I Never totally made that connection. remember that. Really? <laughs> I, as soon as I saw that name, Robert Hayes, as, as Tony Stark Iron Man, I, I really did get excited. Wow. I love all those airplane movies. Good eye watching the credits there. And of course, they mentioned the computer animated 3D effects that are going to be combined with the two-dimensional animation for some scenes. And that was always what I was tuning in for, was on Iron Man, when he would get suited up and it would be like really stilted, you know, 3D CGI Tony Stark and the helmet would zap up into his hands and then yeah it would just kind of all appear on him like that was really fun right I mean it was still young back then and I'll be honest I'm an 80s child I'm ink and paint all the way but I mean I don't know I just finished watching uh, Masters of the Universe Revelation yeah and there is some CGI in it and to me it's it's maybe a little bit better than the Iron Man stuff. Yeah, I watched it too, but it, it took me out when I saw the CGI vehicle or whatever pop on the screen. I'd be like, what? Uh, huh? Exactly. Yeah, that was weird. But, you know, now I think it's time to test our luck by opening up some packs, Tom. So let's get into... Gambit's deck of cards. The Fleer Ultra X-Men 95 will feature 150 fully painted cards by artists such as Boris Vallejo, the Hildebrandt brothers, John Romita Sr., and more. The set features 10 fully painted chromium cards as well as plastic animation and power blast etched foil cards. Yeah, I remember the advertisements for this series more than the cards themselves because X-Men was not my number one thing, so I rarely bought even the X-Men cards. But I just remember like they would do this image image that you would see this really like distorted weird wolverine kind of like flying at you with his claws you know and he was like fully painted then they would like have other images behind him but it's like that ad was featured in a lot of magazines no i always remembered and enjoyed the x-men 92 series the jim lee series Mm -hmm. of cards which by the way are going for a lot of money right now oh i'm sure i mean who knew collectible cards are making a comeback this way it's been nuts seeing that because i I mean, I have so many of these series that I've gotten so close to putting them up on eBay. I was like, no, like (laughs) I work so hard to collect these and I get maybe a hundred, two hundred dollars for them. I'm like, no, sentimental value, much more valuable to me. Definitely. Skybox is releasing a set of oversized extra long Vertigo trading cards featuring DC characters from Sandman, Hellblazer, Swamp Thing, and Books of Magic, which is made of 47 existing comic book covers and 42 original pieces of art, plus a Sky Disc card featuring Death from Sandman that winks at you. Oh, that's 
interesting. Did you spend time reading Vertigo books? My favorite one's Why the Last Man. The other ones I, I really didn't gravitate to, just Why the Last Man it had a wonderful story. Yeah, and, and I've only dipped in and out here and there. Like, recently, I've been reading Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run. Excellent run. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, but a lot of those were kind of, like, grandfathered into Vertigo. You know, even like Sam and right. Swamp Thing existed before Vertigo was a thing. But I actually have a pack of these cards, but they're just so random. So it's, it's, it's kind of a weird collection, in my opinion. Also, there is an ad in this issue for Superman Man of Steel Platinum Series of 90 fully painted cards from Skybox, which are also in the oversized format feature, a steel plate embossed border on every card. The premium and collector's editions are expanded sets that feature bonus cards like a Man of Steel Sky Disc, four forged in steel cards with edged and embossed all foil fonts, and finally, six full bleed Spectre Edge cards. They were just putting everything into this particular series. Right. This is such a weird trend of this era, but they're like, okay, you can get the premium set, then you could get the collector set. You just had to buy the cards over and over again to say you had them all. So it's kind of, this is the beginning of the end for me and collecting cards of the 90s. We're getting very close to the last set I collected. It's going to be coming up soon. Yeah, this is kind of like the beginnings of like variant covers almost. Like the same idea. Yeah, absolutely. Dark Horse is reportedly releasing a new set of cards featuring characters from Mad Men, Sin City, and others that includes a new technology allowing up to 15 images to appear on one card. No explanation on how that works. I, I'm very curious. I, I want to see if I can track down some of these. Find out what does that mean? 15 images on one card? Does that mean it's just like multiple smaller images? Does it, when you twist it, is it lenticular? Like, I don't know. Yeah, that that's definitely interesting. All right. Now it's time that we get into Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. So there is an ego column from Todd McFarlane in here. It is called A Day in the Life. And basically it is Todd chronicling what happens at the Todd McFarlane Productions offices on a daily basis because there's only three people in the office. Todd, Terry Fitzgerald, his right-hand man, and Julia Simmons. This all takes place on August 30th, 1994. It goes from 9.15 a.m. to 6.50 p.m. And a lot of it is just, you know, Todd, oh, he has a meeting to talk about the final pages for Spawn 24. Or he has a meeting with a guy about the toys. Oh, he has a meeting about the Spawn animated series. So there's just a lot of meetings and things going on here. The funniest part to me, though, is at 2.25 p.m., Todd's dad walks in with lunch. Taco Bell. Everybody grabs several items for the bag and work resumes. Terry takes bites while on the phone and Julia tries not to get any guacamole on the original artboards. So yeah. <laughs> and then the final part here, they say that uh, it's 5.38 p.m. It's 20 minutes to 6. Julia reminds Todd that speeding violations are covered by Todd McFarlane Productions and that she needs that last page now. He won't let it go, making sure everything in the background is just right. Todd hands off the last page. Terry grabs his black Sharpie and eraser. Julia grabs the FedEx boxes, both run to the car and begin the 25-minute panic to Federal Express. Then at 5.58 p.m., no speeding tickets and the box makes FedEx. Terry begs the FedEx guy for two more minutes as he erases the last page and puts it in the box. 
The FedEx guy states, you owe me again. I, I just think that's funny as they're always rushing to make that deadline there. So yeah, actually pretty interesting ego column there that also serves as a bit of self-promotion for Todd's upcoming projects like an animated series and more action figures. And Jim Lee had just started his sabbatical, as we reported last issue, and he continued to be absent from the top 10 hottest artists list at this time. We have not gotten a definitive answer how Jim Lee just dropped off completely. He never went down to number 10. He was just number three and gone. So we're going to have to rely on the other image guys for something to talk about in this segment. First up is uh, Eric Larson has finally chosen a name for his imprint, which is Highbrow Entertainment. He's not really referring to the content. The logo is the top of Larson's head, featuring his very receding hairline, hence his brow being high. <laughs> Good that he had a sense of humor about it. Yeah, I've met Eric Larson on a few occasions. Very nice gentleman. If you ever have a beer with him, he'll talk your ear off, but it's an amazing, amazing experience. Really? So is this at cons or just people you know? Or No, it was at a con, and surprisingly enough, Enough, he has an incredible memory. The very first time I met Eric Larson was at an Apple store in Oakland, California. Wow. This was when the iPhone, the very first iPhone came out, and I was buying it for my wife, my girlfriend at the time, and him and his son were there. And I looked over at him, and I was like, no way that's him. No way that's him. And then finally, I, I got enough courage. I went up to him, and I was like, excuse me, sir, are, are you Eric Larson? He's like, I most certainly am. <laughs> He's like, oh, I love the Savage Dragon. He's like, oh, thank you, thank you. So how about this iPhone stuff, huh? Crazy, right? Look at all these people. I mean, very nice. And then two years later, I was fortunate enough to go to San Diego Comic-Con, and I went up to him with a copy of Savage Dragon number two with the turtles, and I was like, I don't know if you remember me. He's like, yeah, you're the kid from the Apple store. Whoa. I could not believe it. My jaw was on the floor. I was like, how do you remember <laughs> that? He's like, oh, I remember everything. That is nuts. That's that's so cool, man. I yeah, love yeah. that. Very nice gentleman. <laughs> now, in further image news, we mentioned it briefly earlier, Shaman's Tears is finally returning home to the publisher that kicked it to the curb. Yes, creator Mike Grell explains, quote, We returned to Image for the same reason we signed with them in the first place. No comic company can sell as many copies of a comic as Image can, simply by virtue of putting their logo in the upper left-hand corner. So all he was there for was the dollar signs. Yeah. But as a a result shaman's tears number three will finally ship in november 1994 i know michael is not here with us somewhere he is shedding a tear is it of joy is it of absolute he just losing his mind i i've shoved shaman's tears down his throat but it's so interesting i don't know if you know about this tom but when they dropped shaman's tears and a bunch of other books mike Rell was so mad he just created an ash can edition of number three that was supposed to come out wow. and kind of shopped it around to stores so that the people that were interested could at least get the next part of the story while he's trying to find a new home. Then he went to Axis Comics, and then they went out of business, you know, because the uh, Tribe book did not sell as well as they thought. So, yeah, but Shaman's Tears, finally back. <laughs> now, in this issue, despite not having too much going on, Jim Lee is mentioned six times, Todd is mentioned seven times, which brings our running total to Jim Lee, 242 mentions... Todd McFarlane, 237. Wow. And if you are still interested at this point in the tally... <laughs> 
what is wrong with you? What is wrong with me? We need help. But yeah, so that about does it uh, for this issue. Tom, I know you read, you know, cover to cover. You were really getting into it. Was there anything else in this issue that just stood out to you? Anything of uh, interest? Just really the part about Bedrock, because I remember having that figure, and it was such a cool figure. You know, it had the, the shoulder pads pop open and actual missiles would fly out of it so i remember those those bring me back but yeah just looking at a a wizard issue after so many years it brings me back is there anything going on right now in terms of like the retro based action figures like i know there's the spider-man line that looks like the toy biz spider-man figures you know definitely the card design is in that style is there anything else like that that people might want to be aware of There's a lot of stuff coming out of Hasbro. What they're referring to now is a five-point figure. Basically, it's five points of articulation. The head moves, arms move, and the legs move, and that's it. They're doing a lot of that with uh, Secret Wars characters now. Oh. There's an Iron Man, Captain America, and you can find them either in Target or Walmart. They're not exclusive to anyone. It's really nice to see the the return of the full-sized figure, as I call it, because I remember that era of the, you know, kind of mid-2000s where everything was so tiny and skinny remember like it was just like plastic was hard to come by or whatever and the figures were so just anemic and tiny and they're finally back (laughs) yeah and all the reaction figures super seven and brian flynn they have pretty much every ip you can think of they just announced xena warrior princess really from back in the day as reaction figures that'll be fun so yeah i mean the 90s are definitely coming back in, in toy form the lightning collection that hasbro's doing with the power rangers fully articulated you know six inches of all your favorite characters from every incarnation, it seems. Whoa. And Tom, for those who aren't familiar with your blog or your podcast, tell them why you know so gosh darn much about toys and where they can hear you talking about them. Well, I'm a lifelong fan ever since I got my first He-Man action figure, and I've been hooked ever since. But if you are curious, you can find myself and my co-host on our YouTube channel for Toy Lines and the Toy Lines podcast, which we both do, all major podcasting platforms. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Toy Lines. And for you 90s fans out there, you can also participate in our contest where if you retweet a certain tweet, tweet from the toy lines podcast you will be entered and could win a cyber frog figure signed by comic artist ethan van skyver right now he's doing his indiegogo to make cyber frog figures which is so exciting right now and if you are a fan of he-man and the masters of the universe please listen to my podcast people of eternia on all major podcasting platforms where i sit down and talk he-man with the present and past creators of masters of the universe Ooh, now there is a series you guys want to sink your teeth into for sure Definitely. I mean, we have some great interviews right now. We have a lot of interesting people coming up, and I'll I'll leave it at this. He might be the only person that has not only worked on the mini comics, but he also worked at Filmation. Okay, maybe some of you Motu fans out there really know how to break down that little nugget, but for those of you who need the the mystery presented to you, go out and check out all of those shows. And uh, yeah, so Tom, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for sharing your stories and your memories. Tell Eric Larson we say hi. (laughs) Your old pal. Yeah, thank you so much, Adam, for having 
having me back on again. It was really a blast. And uh, we invite all of you also to pay attention to what is going on in social media. If you are not yet following us on Twitter at Wizards Comics or on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics or on our YouTube channel, Wizards Comics, you want to be plugged in right now because August is the 30th anniversary of the first issue of Wizard Magazine and there are celebrations afoot. Yes, we dropped the news last time that we are hosting the 30th anniversary reunion roundtable for Wizard Magazine. That's right, we're bringing back so many of the people who have been a part of the Wizard Files and a few people who have yet to appear and you will get a chance to hear them recreate a pitch meeting for creating an issue of Wizard Magazine and you will find out what that creative process was like and I'm sure they are bound to share a few memories of what the old days were like and also bring you some brand new comic book based comedy in that wizard style so it's going to be simultaneously released on YouTube and as a podcast so we will keep you posted and teasing you uh, with all the other celebrations we're going to be going back into wizard's history with some other things as well so until next time keep your books bagged and boarded This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.